It is in Jesus' name. He is our living hope. So everything that we're going to look at today, everything we've been looking at throughout the entire book of Numbers, don't forget, that's our basis. Jesus Christ is our living hope or we would not even be sitting here today. This would just be history class. This would just be Shakespeare or Plato or something else. But it's God's word because Jesus Christ is our living hope. So last week in Numbers 33, we saw everywhere that Israel has been in the wilderness so far on this journey. Today, in Numbers 34, we're not going to see where they've been. We're going to see where they're going. We're going to see a glimpse of the boundaries of the promised land. So this is our, uh, this is our homeschool globe. We're one of those cool families that homeschools. And my wife did like all the homework to find the good globe that can spin all the different ways. <laughs> so I'm not supposed to hurt it today. <laughs> but what I would like to do with it is I actually had like a cheaper globe than this when I was a kid. And I remember as a kid, I would sit on the floor in my room just spinning the globe and then dragging my finger along until it came to rest on the place that I believed it was predicting I would live someday. Sri Lanka. Okay, maybe not Sri Well, I mean, I don't know why not, but let's, let's, let's try another one. Oh, Papua New Guinea. And as a kid, I would keep spinning it until I got what I wanted, which would either be Sweden the land of my heritage, or Japan, because that's where video games and sushi come from. <laughs> One place your finger would never land is Israel. And it's not because you wouldn't want to live there, but it's just because it is so small that the odds of spinning this thing and having your finger land right there are slim to none. And yet, when God created the globe... When God built this planet and spun it on its axis, he put his finger on one specific spot and said, this is the land that I'm promising to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. One tiny place on this huge globe. In fact, to give you a sense of this, the, the globe that you're looking at behind you I want to actually outline Israel for you so you can see what we're talking about. Do you see it? it, it, it the picture just changed. Could you see it? Okay, that's kind of my point. It is actually outlined there. There's a, there's a tiny little red rectangle right there, kind of bottom toward the right. Like you would think, if these are God's chosen people, they are the only ones who have the covenant, the only ones who have the tabernacle, the only ones who see a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, and he's promising them land. What's he going to give them? A continent at least, right? Like, give them Africa, give them Asia, give them Europe, or, or maybe, um, how about their own little island paradise, their own continent of Australia? Instead, he gives them this teeny tiny sliver slice in the Middle East. And, and you've seen the pictures, it's like half wilderness, it's half desert. I think sometimes we come to the Old Testament, we read this stuff about Israel, and we think that what it says is, if you trust in God, you can do whatever you want. If you're the chosen people, you can take whatever you want, you can kill whoever you want, because God's in charge, you can do what you want. But the reality is, he's actually doing something extremely specific in one very specific place on the planet. And so in Numbers 34, he's actually going to outline that place for them. And so if you go to verse 1, 
he begins to describe why this is so critical. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, which is what it was called before Israel lived there, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, the land of Canaan to its boundaries. Now notice a couple things here. As Neil pointed out for us, it uses this phrase that it will fall to you as an inheritance. Almost like an accident. You just kind of trip into it. And we've seen that time and time again, that even as God lays out the plan to take the land, even when he tells them they need to go to battle, if they think they're going to win the battle, if they think they're going to go without God, nothing works. Right? All of this is a gift. Not on their merit, but on God's power and God's promises. And so right here is a very clear statement. It's an inheritance. It's a gift that will fall to you. And yet he also says command. Command the children of Israel about this inheritance that will fall to you. I think that's a really interesting concept for us to try to wrap our heads around. And I think it gives a principle for us, which is this idea that you want to partner with the Lord when he promises you an inheritance. Right? You don't want to sit out, you don't want to settle like a couple of the tribes did a couple of chapters ago. You want to say, hey, if this is what God is promising, and this is where he's moving, if this is a gift, and there's, there's nothing that I can do to make that happen, and yet there is some obedience that I'm being commanded in to walk into the inheritance that God is giving, the promises that God is making. And so there's this really interesting kind of tension between what falls to you as an inheritance and yet what they're commanded to do. But that helps us begin to make sense of passages like this because when you're reading tricky passages, or, or as we'll see, this one has a lot of place names again, you can look for those key words, those commands, those instructions, and what might be there for us. So in verse 3, he's going to start actually outlining this border. And, and so literally what he's doing, this is a more zoomed-in picture of it, he's literally just going from geographical point to geographical point to draw the line around what will be their territory. So he'll go southern border, western border, northern border, eastern border. And you are going to see a lot of place names that you probably don't recognize. A few of them you might. A, a few of them you're going to be like, I feel like I've heard that before. It was earlier in Numbers. <laughs> but a few of them it's like, even if I saw it in there, I can't remember, right? Because we're just not familiar with them. So I want you to picture this. Like if you were doing this for the United States, it would be like God said, on the south your border shall be Mexico. On the west, your border shall be the Pacific Ocean. On the north, your border shall be Canada. And on the east, your border shall be the Atlantic Ocean. If you hear that, you can picture it. You know exactly what he's talking about. That's what this is like for them. He's giving them very specific geographical places that they're familiar with, that when he describes it to them, they say, okay, I see what you're saying. Yep, I can picture it now. So keep that in mind as we read through this. It says, your southern border shall be from the wilderness of Zin, along the border of Edom. Then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea, which is also known as the Dead Sea. Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. So, so there's a couple there that we actually recognize, because the wilderness of Zin is where the people camped when Moses had his failure at Kadesh Barnea. These are places that they remember. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar and continue to Asmon, and the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and it shall end at the sea. So this picture that you're looking at is actually, I got to read this right out of here again. This is the ascent of Akrabim. No, no, no. 
This is the wilderness of Zin. See, I told you this is tricky. Akrabim will be later. This is in the wilderness of Zin. And what I wanted you to see here is you can see this ravine that is going through essentially these two mountain ranges. So a lot of what you're reading in this passage, even though like I have to double check it, then say it wrong, then double check it again. Okay. What God is showing them is that a lot of this is built into the landscape. A lot of their borders are geographical. That when God created the earth, when he created Israel, and when he created these features, he's saying that's going to help my people know where their border is in this very specific land that I'm giving them. Another one that I don't have a picture of is the brook of Egypt, which today is called Wadi El Aresh. It's still there. You can still see it. You can go visit it. These are real places that God is outlining for them. So he goes on then in verse 6. That's their southern border. Now he says, as for the western border, you shall have the great sea for a border, and this shall be your western border. So for them, that's the Mediterranean Sea. Water as far as you can see. So compared to some of the other lakes and seas that are in their land, the Mediterranean Sea is massive. In fact, if you laid the Mediterranean Sea on the United States, it would reach from coast to coast. Like, it's just enormous. And what I want you to notice in this picture, all the way to the left there is Spain, France, Italy. It gets up into Asia and Africa beneath it. So that even though Israel is all the way over on this tiny little edge... They have access to three continents just by the fact that they're on the Mediterranean Sea. So keep that in mind. That's the western border. Then verse 7, he says, This shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall mark out your borderline to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath. Then the direction of the border shall be toward Zedad. The border shall proceed to Ziphron, and it shall end at Hazar Enon. This shall be your northern border. And as Chad told you last week, all of these are being pronounced correctly. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> then he goes from there to their eastern border. He says in verse 10, from Hazar Enan. So picking up right where he left off, like his marker is still on the map. From the Hazar Enan to Shepham, the border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain. The border shall go down and reach to the eastern side of the Sea of Chinnereth. Now here we start to get into things that sound a little bit more familiar. Because as you look at the right side of that map, the Sea of Chinnereth is very far east, top corner. And it's called multiple different things throughout history, and most of them get picked up in the New Testament. So it's also called the Lake of Gennesaret. It is also called the Sea of Tiberias. But most commonly we hear it called the Sea of Galilee. Well, I've heard of that one. So I don't know what Hazan Enon is, but Sea of Galilee, I know that one. And then you start to just trace it right down the waterway. From the Sea of Galilee, the border shall go down along the Jordan River, and it shall end at the Salt Sea, and this shall be your land with its surrounding boundaries. So right now, God has just drawn with his marker all the way around the promised land that he's giving them. I gotta tell you, for me when I read that, I know it's one of those places where your eyes start to glaze over just a little bit because there are so many unfamiliar things. But remember to them, it's like saying, hey, it's from New York to Chicago to Cincinnati. And you're like, yep, yep, I can picture that. I know what flights I would need to get on. I'm with you, God. I'm tracking. So it was really cool a couple of years ago, to, I got to actually go to Israel. And I'm a little bit of a cynic about uh, a lot of things probably. But so in my mind, I was thinking like, this will be fun, but it's not like God is more real because I actually went there. Like whether I ever see it or not, like, I, I trust God, I trust who he is, I know he's giving us this history. 
But there is something really amazing about watching the sun rise over the Sea of Galilee. To realize just what a small space this is. In fact, um, my family, we like to go up to vacation uh, up in Minnesota to Lake Mille Lacs every year. And Mille Lacs is the second largest state and uh, second largest lake in that state. And the surface area of Mille Lacs is actually a little bigger than the Sea of Galilee. It's just that small. In fact, when, uh, when our crew is, was traveling, you, you spend a lot of time in a bus getting from one cool place to see stuff to another cool place to see stuff. And I remember the first day, our, our tour guide, he had in the front of the bus this big map that he could pull down. And so he would always pull the map down to try to show us, like almost like this chapter. Now we're going from here to here and here to here and here to here. And same thing, I'm like, if you say so, man, just let me know when I can get out of the bus. <laughs> but he would challenge us every once in a while with a question. And so he points at the Sea of Galilee and he says, who knows what this is? And because we're all, you know, teacher's pet, and <clears throat> actually I'm a Bible scholar, it's the Sea of Galilee, right? And he says, no, it's, a, it's the lake, Lake of Galilee. Apparently we're the only ones who call it a sea because everybody over there knows better than to call something that small a sea. So he says, this is actually just a lake. It's only a couple miles wide and it's only a few miles long. So this picture, you're looking across the entire Sea of Galilee, And so you begin to be able to picture these moments where it says that Jesus was teaching, but he needed to be alone, so he crossed to the other side and sat in those mountains. And these moments where after his resurrection, he sat by the Sea of Galilee cooking fish one morning. You remember this? And he sees his friends out in the boat and he calls to them. They're like, well, they must not have gone very far if he can still yell to them from shore. Well, there's actually not very far to go. (laughs) Like you could be halfway across or more And Jesus could yell to you that the fish is ready. And they look and they realize, hey, that's Jesus. And they go eat fish with him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And we hopped back on our bus and we visited places on the Jordan River. Trailing right down from the Sea of Galilee. Seeing people baptized in the same place that Jesus was baptized by John. And that river goes all the way down to what this passage calls the Salt Sea. What we know as the Dead Sea. And it's beautiful. And yet everything in that sea is dead because there's so much salt in it. And so all the rumors you hear are true. You literally don't have to do anything. You just kind of flop back and the salt in the water will hold you up. You will float. The other really cool thing it does, you can ask Neil about this. If you get it in your eyes, (laughs) it feels like you're going blind. (laughs) But uh, Neil did not go blind, but you can ask him about sometime about how bad it hurts if you splash it in your eyes despite all the warnings they gave us on the bus. (laughs) But here's my point. When you see these places, you realize this is not mythology, right? This isn't like Hercules and Cerberus kind of stuff. God is talking about real people in real places with real promises. That a lot of what's happening in chapters like this of Numbers where you and I say, can I skip this part? Is that God is saying, I don't want you for a second to think that I was kind of vague or kind of made this up or kind of fudged the details. No, I want to tell you exactly what I'm talking about. That part of why I think he gives us this much detail, writes it down, copies it out, and passes it on for millennia. So that we realize God is in the details. He's paying attention. He has a real plan here for these promises in real places for real people. So when we come back to verse 13, it says, Then Moses commanded the children of Israel, saying, This is the land which you shall inherit. This is the land you inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe to the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, 
and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the house of their fathers, have received their inheritance, and the half-tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance, the two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance on this side of the Jordan, across from the Jericho eastward toward the sunrise. So essentially that's just his reminder that two and a half tribes decided they didn't want to go into this space. And we're going to start to see what they're missing out on. Because while they settled in some territory somewhere else on the planet, it wasn't that spot that God had chosen. I think that's really the second principle for us, that you want to see the land as part of God's ultimate promise. What I mean is it's not just a place to live, not just a place to hang out. It's not just a place for your cattle to eat grass or for you to make a living or for you to do your work. Is it possible that the land, for them, but for us too, where God's put them, where God's put us, is actually part of his ultimate promise because you think again about this globe that's the other thing that I just I just can't get out of my head from that trip like Israel like when I use this for geography with my kids like you need a magnifying glass to find Israel it is a sliver slice of the world and as we hopped in that bus one of the things that they told us is that the entire thing is about the size of New Jersey it's like an hour and a half across and two hours north to south like it's just tiny And yet you think of how much history, how much culture is all crammed into that tiny space. So think about this. If it's true that God created the earth, and if it's true, the New Testament says this, that Christ was slain before the foundations of the earth. Before he even created us, before we even messed up, God knew what was going to happen and had a plan to come here in the flesh to deal with our mistakes, our disobedience, and our rebellion through Jesus Christ. Before the sacrificial system was ever set up, God knew he was going to sacrifice himself to offer us forgiveness. Before he even built the planet? Then he built the planet... And then he chose Israel. You see, what I'm getting at is that I think God made this on purpose. I don't think that he just kind of threw things at the water and see where they floated and then tried to pick one he thought might be kind of pretty for his people. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, but it has a purpose. And if the enemy got any inkling of that, no wonder. There were so many evil people already planted in that place trying to keep God's plan from happening. If he had any clue what God was working on, And yet God chose this piece of property. And when you think about that, practically speaking, think about all of the culture, all of the civilization, all of the trade that passes through that place like a crossroads. That all of Western and Eastern civilization had to go through Israel. This is how Mark describes it when he was writing his biography of Jesus' life. He says that Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So like the core message of the whole Bible is that I need to repent, right? That there are things that I'm following that are bad for me, they're bad for my family, they're bad for the world, they're against God and that separates me from him. And repent means I turn away from that stuff and to him. And then to believe in the gospel, that word gospel means good news. The good news that instead of me being stuck with that penalty, Jesus pays the price for me so that I can be forgiven 
and free and know God's love and peace and comfort and joy starting now and lasting forever. And when Jesus shows up, he comes to Galilee, that tiny lake in this tiny country when the time is fulfilled at exactly the right time. You see, part of what God's doing in Numbers 34 when he draws this outline on the map is that he says, I know exactly where I'm planning to come and fix everything. And I know exactly when I'm going to be there. And so I have to prepare that place now for the moment in history when it will be most ready to spread the good news of the invitation for an inheritance that is not just geographical, but is eternal and is available for everyone. One of the things that made that possible, part of why Jesus came during the Roman Empire, is because the Romans had plastered roads everywhere, connecting all of these continents, trade on the Mediterranean Sea, connecting all of these places. So this is the ascent of Akrabim. <laughs> this really is it. This is one of the borders of Israel, and right down it, you can see where the Romans built a road, carved into the land. So that when Jesus comes and dies and rises from the dead and says, this is how you know God, this is how you get to heaven, there is no other name except Jesus Christ. That doesn't say stuck in the middle of a little country somewhere like down in Australia. Instead, it spreads. That Paul can use the trade routes of the Mediterranean Sea. That Barnabas can take the roads that the Romans carved out for them. And that in a few short years, the gospel has reached Asia, Africa, and Europe all at once. That from there, Western civilization spreads out to the Americas and Eastern civilization to the opposite end of the planet. And then in a short period of time, the message that the inheritance is not just for the Jews, but that through Jesus Christ, it is for everyone, goes global. Because God spun the planet and he said, I'm going to make the perfect spot for my son to live and die and rise again. I love thinking about those promises when I read chapters like this because that's one of the things that helps me make sense out of these kind of blurry-eyed passages in the Old Testament. What does this have to do with Jesus? Because Jesus in his own life said that all of the law and the prophets and the Psalms were about him. Well, this is the law. This is part of what would be called the law. So when I look at 33, when I look at 34, as we get to 35 and 36, what does it have to do with Jesus? That's it. It's a whole lot more than, I really like these people and I want them to have grass for their cattle. Where could I do that? God's been planning this since before time began. Kind of makes it strange to think that there were a couple tribes who didn't really want in on that. They'll stay east of the Jordan. But of course they couldn't see everything that was coming. And it picks back up after realizing that those tribes aren't coming in. In verse 16, the Lord speaks again. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Eleazar the priest. Okay, that's Aaron's son. We're familiar with him. And Joshua, the son of Nun. Right, the man who's going to take leadership after Moses. And you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. 
Now, I want you to notice that last bit because this is what they're actually being asked to do. He's saying, take a leader from every tribe to divide the land for an inheritance. So just tuck that in the back of your mind. He's looking for leaders in the land. Because then the next batch of verses are names from all of those tribes. So I'm not going to read through all of these, but I will just say, if you know anybody who is expecting, great batch of names to pick from. Look at that last. I lo- Look at this last one on here. I love this. Yogli. The, the J makes a y sound in the Hebrew. Yogli. Like smarter than the average bear almost, right? And if you know a Yogli, I'm just kidding. I know. I, I, my, my kids and I were at the aquarium yesterday, and you get to the gift store at the end, and here's all the mugs with kids' names on it and all the license plates. We couldn't find any obeds <laughs> on those things, no axles. Couldn't even find a bell. Uh, so I know, I pick unique names. So if you like Yogli, it's a good name. You can come talk to me afterwards about what it means. But my point is that same thing happens for the next few verses. Right? We see that it talks about the sons of Joseph. I know Joseph, right? We, we forget almost that Joseph was just a weird Hebrew name too until somebody picked up on it. And now so many people have been named Joseph. It feels normal. But all of these names are really like that. Haniel, Kemuel, Elezaphan. But here's what I want you to notice. He's calling them by name. Right? Again, the detail that he's adding. Not just that some people at some time, well, somebody should. Maybe not me, but somebody. No, he's calling them by name to take some part in this promise. Remember that he said he was looking for leaders? So here's the principle for us. As if God's calling you by name, Lead in your land. Now your land is probably not in Israel. But, but this map has Cincinnati on it too. It's, it's literally, it's right there. I can see it. You probably can't see it from there, but it says Cincinnati. Where is your land? What are your borders? Where's your territory? What are your boundaries? And as I thought about that this week, it's like, Okay, what house do I live in? Right? What literal spot on planet Earth do I spend my time where God might be asking me to lead? Where do you work? Maybe what is your territory at work? Where do you travel? And I think for us to literally think about what neighborhood has God put you in? Because I care a lot about people who don't know Jesus. I pray for them. I want to I introduce them to Christ. I want them to have a chance to hear about inheritance. But literally, odds are, I don't know any of your neighbors in here. And you don't know mine. Where has God put you? What neighborhood are you in? What city are we in? What does it look like to lead in this land? Because check out the very last verse of this chapter. He gives them that same instruction again. Verse 29. These are the ones the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. And that word divide really means to apportion. Right? He's telling them, when you get there, it's not just for you, O leader of that family, O leader in the land. It's not just for you. You need to make sure that everybody with you gets a chance to enjoy a piece of that inheritance. That you share the promise that God has given you when you dwell in the land. That whoever lives around you is experiencing the blessing that's coming because you're leading in that place of God's inheritance. And so we start to see a little bit of how this carries forward from literal geographic territory 
into the metaphor of the inheritance of a Christ follower. Here's how Peter talks about it. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. And, and I love this because we sang living hope earlier this morning. Can you remember back that far? Jesus Christ, my living hope. And look at how Peter describes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. You see, our inheritance is not actually property. You know, whatever other things we call inheritance, it's not actually stock options or a portion of a company or a, a special object that my grandma gave me. Those things may be passed down, but all of those things are corruptible. They can be defiled. They can fade away. If Christ comes back, I know this can sound depressing, but literally, it all burns up. And sometimes that's such a peaceful, I know I sound weird right now, that's a peaceful thought sometimes though. When you're stressed about stuff and worried about things and stuff's breaking down, you think, you know what, if he comes back this afternoon, it burns up anyway. So maybe I shouldn't be that worried about the car or the house or whatever's next. Because here's the reality, he's promising us an inheritance that is incorruptible, cannot be defiled, does not fade away. And it's not a plot of land. It's salvation in Jesus Christ. Man, what would it look like to share that in our land? A couple of weeks ago, my family and I went to family camp. Did you ever go to family camp? Me neither. But my wife used to all the time when she was a kid. They would go to this family camp and you, you get your own cabin and your own bunks and you play carpet ball and stuff, you know, all weekend long and uh, zip lining. They had zip lining, so that was fun. But one of the things was that this was a, a Christian camp so we had like chapel twice a day, which is basically like church twice a day, like two equipping services, one in the morning, one in the evening. And it was kind of refreshing just to, just to sit and listen and have like no responsibilities and I don't have to wear a microphone, you know, just get, to, just get to hear a little bit. So I was praying, Lord, you know, talk to me this weekend, teach me, you know, whatever you want me to say, whatever you want me to hear. But it was kind of amazing because at this one chapel, the speaker asked the whole group, hey, tell me. Just raise your hand and just, you know, shout it out. Who is the person, you know, how did you hear the gospel? How was the gospel shared with you? How did you hear the good news? And as I listened, it was amazing to me because nobody said a church. Like nobody said, Horizon told me the gospel. Or, you know, First Baptist told me the gospel. Or St. Mary's or whatever. Nobody listed a church. Every single person's answer was another person. Which like once I picked up on it, it kind of seemed obvious. But I've noticed in my own life, it's really easy to default into this position where I think my church shares the gospel. My church helps explorers discover God. My church loves the Bible. But really it's got to be personal. And it's got to be us. Right? He didn't say... Oh, tabernacle, when you come into the land, apportion it, it can't. It's a tent. It just sits there. He said, I need leaders. Leaders of families. Leaders of men and women in the land. I think the other thing that really struck me about that is people were sharing. You know, it, maybe it was a pastor, but more often it was a grandparent or a parent or a friend. 
And it reminded me that Ryan, our, our family ministry pastor, had asked us almost the exact same question in a team meeting a number of months ago right here at Horizon. Like people who spend all day long at church, all week long, hey, what did God use to bring you to Christ? And nobody said a church. They all said a person. And I'll bet that if you're sitting here this morning as a Christ follower, wherever that started for you, I'll bet it was a person. There was someone who loved Jesus enough and loved you enough to make sure that you understood the inheritance you could have in him, the forgiveness that you could have in him. And so as I read this chapter and I was asking God, you know, what would he share with me and, and what would he have me share with you guys? That really hit as just like the most obvious thing. <laughs> share it. In fact, I found this quote from C.H. Spurgeon a couple of weeks ago. If you don't know Spurgeon, he is one of the most prolific sermon writers like in the history of the world. Died young and still has like 10 times as many sermons printed as anybody else. And an awesome teacher. So I love that he's the one who said this. That it is not the end. Like it's not the goal, though it may be the beginning of Christian life to come and hear sermons. So this is nice, but here's what it's really about. Scatter as widely as ever you can the blessing which you get for yourself. The moment you find the light and you realize that the world is in the dark, run away with your light and lend somebody else a light. Don't let that match burn out, but share it. And I can tell you, if, if I'm sitting where you are, and I don't mean 10 years ago, 20 years ago, three weeks ago, like if I'm sitting where you are today, I know that that can make us nervous. And we start to think like, like I used to tell myself, this is, this is, you know, it is what it is. Well, I'm not an evangelist. There are people who have the gift of evangelism. I've heard about those. My great-grandfather was one. That's not me. Um, but I'll pray for those who share the gospel with their friends and neighbors. <laughs> uh, the Lord grew me out of that. But I want you to know that, like, I never know how to put this. Like, I'm not standing here because I'm a pastor. I don't even really like being called a pastor. I don't know. I feel like that's a gift more than a position. You can do with that what you want. I'm standing here because I believe that Jesus is our living hope. And if like, if our government goes sideways and the world goes sideways and everything starts burning down and we're not allowed to meet here anymore and this building is gone and the police are after us and I don't collect a check anymore and nobody says, hey, nice job today. I'm still doing this because I believe that Jesus is our living hope. And I, and I will just tell you honestly, I'm shy and I'm an introvert. And I have to really hype myself up to go meet a new neighbor. Let alone like, can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And so what I've found is, my friends, my neighbors, are not nearly as opposed to hearing what you care about as you might think they are. I think the media has so conditioned us to think that nobody wants to hear about your stupid God stuff. And it's just not true when you're talking to friends. And they may or may not believe you. They may or may not think it's interesting. They may think you're a little weird. Hey, if they hated you, they hated Jesus first. But I found that on the basis of friendship, if I talk about the things that are important to me and they talk about the things that are important to them, it's almost counterintuitive to leave Jesus out, to not offer to pray with them, to not share something that's so meaningful to me. And so I just encourage you that when I say something like, are you ready to share the inheritance that you have in Christ? 
You may not be especially gifted for it. You may be shy and introverted like me. I'm not saying it because I'm the expert and it's easy for me. Like you hear these guys that like they get on a plane and by the time they land, they've led 12 people to Christ. Like that's not me. I don't know that if God does a miracle, maybe that happens someday, but that's not me. My encouragement to you is that you are who God made you to be and he has you in a very specific place on this planet. So would you share that light? Would you share that inheritance? Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, I do just thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our living hope. Lord, you know that um, some of us feel bold and courageous all the time, and some of us feel like we have to hype ourselves up to it, and so I'm just asking in this room, I'm just asking for those who are gathered with us wherever they are on that globe right now, God, that your spirit would guide our conversations with those around us who don't know you, that we would be able to divide up your inheritance and share it with people around us, that you would give us the words, that you would give us the confidence, and that we would just be surprised by the places that um, you're at work in people's hearts because you love them even more than we do, and this is all part of your plan. And God, we will ask that, maybe even with a specific name on our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before you go, I do just want to let you know of a couple of things that we do around here. When you hear us talk about creating comfortable environments, that's why. We're trying to help you have a place that you can invite a friend to where they get to start to explore and see who God is. And so one of those that's been going on right now is on Sunday nights at 8 o'clock, Monday mornings at 6.09, uh, Ken Kington is here teaching some really great marriage tips, but also how they come from God's perspective. And so that might be a fun thing to bring a friend to. You've only missed one week of it, so guys, if you want to come back tonight or tomorrow morning, we'd love to have you. And there's also an opportunity for women coming up as well that starts this Wednesday. And this is a, a group that's actually doing something really cool because we're going one chapter at a time, but this group is going to kind of take big picture of the Bible. Like if I was really going to believe it, wouldn't I want to know what's in there? So I'm going to let our women's ministry leader, Gail Maui, tell you a little more about it. Hi, I'm Gail Maui, our women's ministry leader here at Horizon. We are so excited to bring this study to you this fall called Seamless. In it, the author Angie Smith weaves together for us the pages of the Bible from the beginning to the end into one seamless story. Together, we're going to study the people, the places, and the promises of the Bible. So if you've ever wondered what the Bible's all about, this study is for you. We invite you to come and study with us on Wednesday evenings starting September 21st at 7 p.m. It's a great time of the day for women to get together, connect a bit, and study a bit. You're welcome to bring your children. We offer child care as well if you'd like. Registration is on the website, so feel free to go to horizoncc.com and register. And if you want to talk further about this or have more questions, you can find me most Sundays here at Horizon or feel free to reach out via email or phone. And I'm really excited about this study and I hope to see you all there. We've done this study before and it is always good. And I would tell you, if I was a girl, I'd be there, but I'm not. So I hope you enjoy it. And you can actually, I didn't ask her if I could do this, but you can actually find Gail at Horizon this Sunday she's sitting right over here so if you do have questions you know please feel free to talk to gail she's great uh, just to get to know um, and if neither of those quite scratch that itch i also wanted to just let you know that on october 2nd which is a sunday after each of the services we're having something that we kind of call a group's open house 
which is literally will be up the stairs uh, on the landing there um, out in the atrium just with a few leaders to kind of let you meet and greet and find out more about the different groups that happen around here at Horizon. I know they're not always that visible and some of you have been asking how do I find out what there is and, and what I could get connected to. Um, and it hurts my heart a little bit when I hear people think that like there must not be any. Oh my goodness there's a bunch and they're great. So that's another opportunity just to find out what else is out there because we would love to help you connect to something that you're really going to love. So that is October 2nd uh, after each service up on the landing if you'd like to hang out there as well. Hey, thank you all for coming. This is that part now where you've heard a sermon and you go share that light. We'll see you next week.